So if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, I hope that you'll remember that when we were in Acts chapter 2, that we spoke about true Pentecostal preaching. And it was in that message that we defined for the church what quality preaching actually looks like. And to do that, we highlighted several segments of the sermon of Peter, the apostle, on the day of Pentecost. Now, it was there in verse 22, in chapter 2, as Peter spoke to a large group of Jews who had gathered because, of course, of all of the commotion, all of the ruckus that was happening surrounding the coming of the Holy Spirit, that Peter said in verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, and this word is often translated miracle. So we could plug that in there. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Miracles are a pretty rare thing, aren't they? I mean, isn't that why we call them miracles? We wouldn't call them miracles if we expected them to happen all the time. I mean, they're unexpected. And if you were to look up miracle in the dictionary, you would find that it is a surprising event which is inexplicable by the laws of nature and science. So if an event happened often, it would not be miraculous, it would be an expectation, right? That's the opposite of a miracle. Peter said that God used miracles to apodectu me, Jesus, to show him off, to show him out. God was using miracles to show Jesus off. God says, this is my son and I'm going to prove it by showing you all the miracles that he will do. And so he worked these miracles through Jesus Christ. He uses miracles to affirm the work of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Jesus And I had mentioned to you that there had not been any miracles, no miraculous events at all in the land of Israel for over 400 years. Think about it. No miracles had been recorded in over 400 years. And then when Jesus came onto the scene, from the moment he turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana, he was performing miracles everywhere he went, countless thousands and thousands of surprising events which were inexplicable by natural and scientific law followed Jesus everywhere he went. Everywhere he went, he was performing signs. He was performing miracles. I mean, how does natural and scientific law explain someone walking on water? You try and show me a scientific theory for that. How does natural and scientific law explain someone who has been blind from his birth having eyes that were instantly able to see? How does it explain deaf people who were instantly able to hear? I mean, when in the history of Israel, prior to the ministry of Jesus Christ, had anyone whose body was so completely destroyed by leprosy ever made completely well instantly? When did that ever happen? It had never happened before. It can't be explained through natural or scientific law. Do you know why? Because it's a miracle. It was miraculous. It's the only conclusion that you could draw from that. It was miraculous. And what did they learn from the miracles that Jesus had performed? As he was walking around in his ministry, performing all these signs and all of these miracles, what was it that the people who had seen him minister, what was it that they had taken from all of these miracles? 
Well, Nicodemus, who was one of the highest ranking religious leaders on the Jewish religious council known as the Sanhedrin, this is what he said about Jesus in John chapter 3, the last part of verse 2. He says, no one can do these signs. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. That was what Nicodemus said. So what was it he was actually saying? Nicodemus, one of the highest ranking religious officials in the land, was saying, we know that Jesus came from God. We know that. We know that God is with him. No other thing could explain what was happening. And what was it that convinced Nicodemus that Jesus was from God? Well, God was showing Jesus off with all of the miracles that he was performing. That's what had convinced Nicodemus that he was from God. It was all the miracles. It was all the healings. John chapter 9 tells us that it was actually causing the religious leaders to become divided over Jesus. Later in the ministry of Jesus in John chapter 11, in verse 47, the Bible tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. That's the Sanhedrin, the, the same group that Nicodemus was a part of. It's the religious leaders. But they, the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do? Listen to this. For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone is going to believe in him. What was it they were going to believe? What did he mean when he said everyone is going to believe in him? What would they believe about him? Well, they would believe, just as the Pharisees did, that Jesus was from God, wouldn't they? Because the signs were doing what they were supposed to do. The miracles were doing what they were supposed to do. And those people would believe his teaching. They would believe what Jesus was saying about the kingdom of God. So the miracles that Jesus performed, all of the healings that he was doing, were an authenticating work of God to point people to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and people were beginning to believe in that. It was hitting its mark. That's what was happening. So with the arrival of Christ, God used miracles to show him off. God used miracles to affirm and to authenticate his ministry and his message. God used the miracles and the healings and all of the great things to authenticate the fact that the message that Jesus was speaking was from God. Now, as you remember so far in the book of Acts, if you've been with us from the very beginning, Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus ascended to heaven. And you'll remember then, in fulfillment of His promise, He sent the Holy Spirit just like He said He would. And once again then, to authenticate that the coming of the Holy Spirit was from God, there were attendant miracles with the coming of the Holy Spirit, weren't there? There was the sign of the sound of wind. Do you remember that? We said there was a, a sound, but there was no actual wind. There was the sign of these little fiery things resting on the heads of all who were present. And then there was the confirming sign of these uneducated men and these uneducated women speaking the wonderful works of God in actual languages that they had never heard or studied before. So God used the miracles. God used these miracles to bear testimony to the fact that this new church was the one true church which was approved by God. This is my church, he's saying. And then after all of that, after Peter stood up and gave his quality message, the 120 people who had been meeting in the house of Mark's mom were joined by 3,000 more people. And the city of Jerusalem had the world's first Christian megachurch. Instantly, overnight. This church of 120 became a church of 3,120 instantly. Now, 
It was customary in those days, just to give you a little bit of history here, it was customary in those days for people to have regularly scheduled prayer times. And for the Jews that those times, remember their days began at six o'clock in the morning. So for the Jews whose day began at six o'clock in the morning were the third, the sixth, and the ninth hours. So if we were to translate that to our clock, it would be nine o'clock, noon, and 3 p.m. That was their customary prayer time. Now, many members of the early church continued to attend the prayer time at the temple at nine, noon, and three, as they always had. Now, since the church had instantly grown from 120 to 3,000 people overnight, they could no longer all fit into the house of Mark's mom. And certainly, she wouldn't want them to, right? You know what's worse than having 120 people in your house? Having 3,120 people in your house is worse than that, right? And so they couldn't, her house wouldn't fit them anymore, so they had to find a way to minister to these people. And the only other place that would have been large enough to accommodate a group like that That size of an assembly would have been in the largest courtyard of the temple known as the courtyard of the women. There in the courtyard of the women, they would all gather together and they would be instructed by the apostles and they would commit themselves to the apostles' doctrine and teaching and they would be built up in their faith in Jesus Christ. In those days, cities had a rather large wall which had been completely around the city to offer some level of safety or protection from invading forces. And as you know, the city of Jerusalem was was no different. They had a large wall. There was a big lengthy wall, probably several miles long, that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. In some places, the wall that surrounded Jerusalem would have been as high as 40 feet high, and it would have been as deep or as thick as 8 feet. Can you imagine that? That's a big wall. And at various points in the wall, there would have to be gates that would open, of course, to allow people to come and go. At the time of Christ, it's estimated that there were either 7 or 8 gates in this wall that went around the city of Jerusalem. These gates, of course, would have been the most heavily trafficked areas of the city because they were the only places that people could enter and exit the city. Now I want you to think about this. Can you imagine at the time of Passover, at the Feast of Pentecostal, the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who would have been making their way to the city of Jerusalem and they would have been coming and going through these seven or eight gates. Can you imagine the number of people that would have been processed through those gates? One of those gates was the gate known as the Beautiful Gate. Uh, The ancient historian Josephus tells us that the gate, uh, the beautiful gate, was made of Corinthian brass. It was decorated in silver and gold. It It was a beautiful gate. And you can imagine as the sun came up on the east and it shined down on that gate, how it would have just reflected. It would have been all aglow by the sun. And so many people making their way to the temple to worship at the hours of 9, noon, and 3 would make their way through the gate. This gate was particularly convenient because it was on the east side of the temple and it was the shortest path to get to the temple. As these people now are making their way to the temple to pray and to worship and do their thing, they would have gone through this gate because of its location relative to the temple. It would have been really easy access to get in and out. I don't know about you, but as I've driven around the city of Milwaukee over the years... I've noticed that there are certain intersections which always have panhandlers there. Have you noticed that? I mean, there are just certain intersections where you can be sure that you're going to see panhandlers there begging for money. 
And a couple of times, as I've driven through these intersections, I've seen these panhandlers arguing and shouting with one another at the intersection. And I've been told uh, that they've actually been known to physically fight with one another over the right to panhandle at a particular intersection. I guess some intersections are probably a little bit more lucrative than others. And sometimes you'll drive through the intersection and you'll see that same guy panhandling there for days at a time. Am I right about that? Have you ever noticed that? And there are just certain intersections where they tend to be. Now, this was also the case at the time of Christ. I want you to stay with me here. Of course, the healthcare system at the time of Christ was not the way it is today, and people became sick and they became beggarly because of things that would have been really simple to our healthcare system today. But if you're thinking about it, if you're a panhandler, what a better place to be panhandling or begging as people were making their way to worship at the temple of God than the beautiful gate. It's the nearest to the temple. There are likely to be thousands of people coming in and out of here every day. And if you're sitting there, there's a good chance that maybe you're going to come across a worshiper who's on his way, you know, to the temple and they would obviously want to be particularly generous so that they could impress God and earn his favor with their generosity. And so the beautiful gate would have been a great spot and there likely would have been beggars all along the road on the way there. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to take you this morning to Acts chapter 3, and I want you to to follow along with me. This is what's happening in verse 1. Now, Peter and John were on their way up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So we're just going to stop right here for right now. So here's this man, this man who has been born without the use of his legs, and as such, he would have had absolutely no means of income at all. There's no organized welfare system. There's no organized social security system. And without that, the man is left to beg other people to give him enough money that someone could go and buy food on his behalf and he could survive for another day. And to do that, he wanted to be in the best possible location, doesn't he? Doesn't that make sense? Someone, and who knows who it was, maybe it was even several people, had been in the habit of carrying this man to the gate beautiful, or to the beautiful gate, every day, the Bible tells us. People had seen this man at this same gate, day in and day out, maybe even for years. As people were making their way to the temple three times a day and they passed through this gate, this guy was sitting there day after day after day for years and everybody knew who he was. Now, at the same time, the Greek language tells us that Peter and John had been in the habit of going to the temple for the three o'clock prayer time. So day in and day out, Peter and John are making their way up to the temple through the beautiful gate, most likely. Who knows how many times they had seen this guy. There's no telling how many times they had walked past this man. He's been there for years. Who knows how many times they've given him a little bit of change. Maybe they had a little bit and they could help him out. Who knows how many times they walked right by him and said, sorry, man, we got nothing for you today. But today, as they approached the beautiful gate, This crippled man sat there on the ground asking everyone for money as they came by. And as Peter and John made their way up the road, today this man's life was going to change. Take a look at verse 4. 
Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and he said, look at us. And the man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. I want to just stop there. I mean, you know how that works, right? They fix their gaze on him. You know what I never do when I approach the intersection that's got a panhandler? I never look at him, right? Sure, it's not, you know, I've got to, it's time for me to adjust the radio or, you know, I got a phone call. Is anybody else like me? I mean, don't raise your hand, but I mean, honestly, isn't that what you're doing? I mean, you know how it is. You approach the intersection, the guy is holding the sign that says, anything helps, God bless. And so you turn your head the other way. You try to avoid making eye contact with him. But as this man asks for change, Peter dials in on him. He finds him through all of the other beggars, through all of the people coming and going. Peter sees him and he dials right in on him and he looks intently at him and he looks directly in his eye and so does John. He stares him right in the eye and he says, hey, look at me. And the man is thinking, great, this is going to be a good day. I'm going to get a little bit of money. These guys are going to give me something. And so he looks at them. But what he is about to get is very different than a couple of coins. He was expecting just enough to get him through the day. But what he got wasn't what he expected. He expected money. He expected money. And that's what you do. You give beggars money. That's what they would have done. That was expected. Especially in those days. That was called almsgiving. And it was expected for you to do that. In fact, rabbinical tradition taught, and I want to read this to you. Listen to this. Giving of alms provides a ransom for sin. You hear that? You see how important it was to the Jewish people of that day to give alms to the poor? Giving of alms provides a ransom for sin and it earns the individual entrance into the kingdom of God. That's how important it was to give to the poor and the beggarly and the orphans and the widows. You were expected to give. And what the beggar was expecting when Peter looked at him and said, hey, look at me, was that he would dig into his pocket pull out a few coins and give them to him. That was expected. But what he got that day was something that was inexplicable. Natural law, physical law could not explain what was going to happen to him. No one could explain it. It was a miracle. Take a look at verse 6. Peter said, look man, I'm short on cash. I, I I got no change on me. Silver and gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then he reached out and he took that man by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. I want you to imagine that for a moment. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? This man was born without the use of his legs. He had never taken a step in all of his years. He had never done a squat in all of his years. His legs did not work. He had never used them. He had zero muscle tone. His legs would have likely been shriveled up and they would have been brittle. And Peter says to him, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and start walking. Now when somebody speaks those words in Jesus' name or in the name of Jesus Christ, It's important for us to understand that it means that you're speaking on behalf of Jesus. So when you finish your prayer and you say, in Jesus' name, amen, and you just kind of throw that in as fast as you can, it means, okay, I'm I'm done. I'm I'm ready to go and, and eat my meal now. And you throw in the words, in Jesus' name, what you are saying is, I am speaking now as if on behalf of Jesus Christ. 
What I am saying, God, to you, the petition that I bring to you, is something that is consistent with the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. When someone speaks the words, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are saying by virtue of the character and the authority of Jesus Christ, I am saying this to you. It means this is exactly what Jesus would want me to do. I wonder, did this man have any reason at all to believe in Jesus Christ? Put yourself there and think about this. He had been sitting at that gate probably for years, day in and day out. He had probably been there and seen Jesus pass through the gate with crowds of people surrounding him. How many times do you think Jesus went through that gate? There were only seven or eight of them. He went in and out of the city often. And as he approached the city, there would have been crowds of people. There were beggars all over the place. How many times had Jesus Christ passed that man with crowds of people all around him? I'm sure he knew that Jesus had been healing people. I'm sure that he knew that Jesus had been making people well. He had probably heard the stories. But Jesus had never done anything for him. Think about that. I've heard about him. He's a great guy. He's done a lot of stuff for a lot of people. I know that. He's healed thousands of people, but he has never done anything for me. I'm still crippled. Why hadn't Jesus ever healed this man? Certainly he had walked past him. Have you ever asked yourself that question before? Why hasn't Jesus healed me of this illness? He can do it. Why hasn't he done it? Why hasn't Jesus made my child well? Why has he allowed my loved one to become sick? Why is he allowing me to suffer? And I think that's a perfectly natural reaction, don't you? The crippled man in Acts 3 always makes me think of the blind man in John 9. A lot of parallels in those in those narratives. Both men were born with their affliction. The crippled man was born crippled. The blind man was born blind. And in John chapter 9, the Bible tells us that as they were passing by, they saw the blind man. And John says in verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, listen to this, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it wasn't that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God could be displayed in him. I'm always puzzled by that question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I mean, how could he have done anything to have caused himself to be born blind? He was born that way. But in those days, people believed that the gods would cause them to become ill as a a punishment for a bad behavior or for whatever. But he was born that way. He hadn't done anything wrong. He just was born that way. But I think it's kind of a, what did I do to deserve this kind of response? Can I tell you that people still do that today? Maybe some of you are doing that. People ask themselves, what did I do wrong that I have to struggle with this? What did my parents do wrong that my brother or my sister is sick? Why won't God heal? Why won't He heal me? He can. Is He angry at me? Friends, I want you to hear this. If you're a believer and you're living a lifestyle of consistent submission to Him, He's not mad at you. You're okay. He's not punishing you. You have to remember that illness and death 
are all a product of the curse of sin. Because there is sin in the world, there are illnesses and there are death in the world. No one is exempt from it. Every single one of you is going to be sick at some point, and every single one of you at some point is going to die, provided the Lord doesn't come first. From the guiltiest to the most innocent of all of humanity, we all get sick, and eventually we all die. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed to man what? It's appointed to man to die, and then to face the judgment. Friends, listen. Did you know that it is not God's will that your earthly bodies will never die? It's not His will that your bodies never die. Did you know that every single one of the people that Jesus ever healed during His ministry died? How about this one? Lazarus died twice. Eventually, they all died. Sometimes it's an illness. Sometimes it's an accident. But eventually, it happens. Did you know that it is not the will of God that no one would ever be sick? I want you to know that. It is not God's will for you to never be sick. It is not the will of God that you would never be afflicted. But listen, it is God's will that we grow in our faith through those difficult times. That's His will for us. That we lean hard on His sovereignty. That we cling to Him and that we hold on to Him and that we allow Him to work an eternal good in our lives through the suffering of our temporal and earthly body. Friends, do you know why Jesus healed those people during the time of His ministry? Consider that. Why did He heal those people? Did He heal them so that they could live better, more comfortable, more prosperous temporal lives here on earth? Is that why He healed them? That's not why He healed them. Remember what Peter tells us. It was to affirm His ministry was from God so that people would believe in Him and be saved. That is the point. It was that people could live better and more comfortable and more prosperous eternal lives in heaven. That's the point. So Peter reached down and he grabbed the man by his right hand and he began to lift. And as he did that, God created new legs for this man. Can you imagine the scene? His shriveled up legs instantly were different. His muscles were different. His bone structure was instantly different. And look at verse 7. And leaping up, leaping up, he began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Friends, he did not have to go to physical therapy twice a week for three months. Isn't that great? He did not have to go back to the doctor again. Nobody had to teach this man who had never taken a step in his life how to walk. Nobody had to teach him how to jump. He was instantly strong, and though he had never done any of those things before, he was instantly completely well, completely well. He was made whole. Jesus said about the blind man that he had been born blind, that the works of God may be displayed in him, do you see? That's exactly the purpose of the crippled man's healing. Look at verse 9. All the people 
saw him walking and praising God. And that's great news. Aren't we glad that the man can now walk and that he's healed? But they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were what? They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Why? Because it was most unexpected. They had seen him sitting at the beautiful gate asking for money for years. They had probably even given him a little bit of cash here and there. They knew how this, who this man was, and natural and scientific law could not explain what had happened to him. It was a miracle, and friends, hear me, the miracle hit its mark. Why hadn't Jesus healed him all the many times he had been in and out of the beautiful gate? Because now was the time that the works of God could be displayed in him, that the people who watch would be filled with wonder and amazement at what happened. This was the right time. And those men and women were filled with awe, the Bible tells us. Did you know that at the miracle of languages in Acts chapter 2, The Bible tells us that the people were amazed and astonished. In verse 12 of chapter 2, they were amazed and they were perplexed. In verse 43, there was a sense of awe that came over every soul. And at the miracle of the healed cripple here in chapter 3, they were filled again with wonder and amazement. Do you see something very consistent beginning to develop here in the book of Acts? We're only in the third chapter. And do you see this consistent theme beginning to develop? God has been using miracles to create a sense of awe. Do you see it? Miracles are drawing people's attention and people are being pointed to spiritual truth. Take a look at verse 11. It says, while he clung to Peter and John, speaking of the, the man, the former cripple, all the people ran to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. They were astounded. So the miraculous healing of the cripple has set the table. Just like on the day of Pentecost, thousands of people have been drawn by the miracle. And the next time we get together and we spend our time in the book of Acts together, we're going to see Peter preach another quality sermon. And we're going to see the first church of Jerusalem become a mega, mega church. But before we go, I just want to tell you that I believe in my heart that God still heals the sick today. I believe that. I believe that God can do whatever He wants. And I believe that God can heal the sick. And I believe sometimes He chooses to miraculously do that. I also believe that the Word of God commands us to care for one another. And I believe that the Word of God commands us to pray for one another, believing for divine and miraculous healing. I believe the Word teaches that. Unfortunately, friends, I believe that it's possible that we've become victims of poor teaching, which sometimes tells us that if we're not healed, It's because either we have sinned or our parents have sinned. Or maybe if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. Maybe you've done something wrong and God's not going to honor that. And I want you to know that's not true. In fact, in the case of Acts 3, if you're to read through the Gospels, you'll find that in most cases in the New Testament, there's absolutely no mention of faith at all on the part of the person who was healed. Very rarely is there ever a mention of faith on the part of the person who has been healed. So don't feel like if you've been praying and God hasn't healed, it's because your faith is weak. Don't, don't feel like that. And don't feel like God doesn't care 
Don't feel like God is punishing you if you're not healed. Every time I talk about this subject, I always think of the Apostle Paul. I mean, what a great model of faith, right? What a powerful man of God. But did you know that Paul had some sort of a, he calls it a thorn in his flesh. Do you remember that passage? We're not exactly sure what it is. Some people suggest he had problems with his eyes. Some say it was something else. It doesn't matter. But on three occasions, Paul says that he asked God to take the affliction from him. And on three occasions, do you know what God said? No. He said, Paul, my grace is enough for you just the way you are. He said, my strength is made complete when you're weak. Is it okay for me to tell you that sometimes I think God simply says no? Is that okay for you to hear? It's not what I want to hear, God. No. And I want you to know that that's okay. Paul says, for me, I'm going to take pleasure, he says, in my infirmities. I, I don't, seems a little weird to me. I couldn't take pleasure in it. But Paul says, I'm going to take pleasure in it because it means that God can really demonstrate His strength in me, in my weakness. So if you've been praying for a loved one, if you yourself have been sick and you're asking God for healing, listen, it's okay for you to do that. And there's no reason for you to stop doing that. But you can't allow it to cause you to second-guess God's sovereignty or to create some lack of confidence in the genuineness of your faith. You can't allow that to happen. Did you hear that? Sometimes God just says, no, my grace is enough to carry you through this. My strength will be made complete. My strength will be made perfect in your weakness. Friends, difficult as it is, I want you to remember this. Earthly illness is temporary. Eventually, when we have left this temporary world, your healing will be made complete. And you'll be restored completely. And on the other hand, in His mercy, if God chooses to give you a miraculous healing, remember the purpose for the healing. And what is that? The reason that God does it is to draw attention that people may be pointed to spiritual truth. That's the purpose. Give Him glory. Publicly and openly walking and leaping and praising God that all may witness and be awe-stricken by the mighty deeds of God. All across this room this morning, there are people who are sick. There are people with loved ones who are sick. And I believe in my heart that some of you have asked the question, what have I done wrong, God? Why are you not healing why are you not making my loved one well? Friends, I want you to know His grace is more than enough. Cling tightly to Him and understand that He wants to work an eternal purpose through your terrible earthly circumstance. Father, I thank You for everyone in this room this morning. And Lord, for those who are here today and they've got sick family members, sick children, sick parents, 
And they've been asking and asking and asking. And they've seen no improvement. I pray, God, that you would give them the grace to receive the eternal work you're trying to work in their lives. I pray, God, that you would strengthen their faith. Not in healing, but in you. That they can trust you to guide them through the most terrible circumstances. Because they know that on the other side, the reward is far greater. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would strengthen and encourage them. Wrap your arms around them. and Help them to understand that your grace is enough and you've got this. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would build in our hearts a compassion for one another and help us to surround them and embrace them and lift them up in prayer. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.